Hello and welcome to this podcast from the City of London Churches. My name's Laura Jurgensen and I'm Rector of St Botolph's Oldgate. We're looking at two women with historic links to the City of London in this podcast, but whose lives resonate strongly today as we live through the coronavirus pandemic and as we reflect on the legacy of the slave trade here in the City of London as part of a more global concern about structural racism. Later, we'll hear about Phyllis Wheatley, the first African-American woman to be published in English. But for first, from All Hallows by the Tower, Sophia Ackland reflects on the life of St. Ethelberger and health and spiritual care, both in the 7th century and today. She's joined by city guide Kate Boyle and hospital chaplain Wendy Shearer. Hello, my name is Sophia Ackland and I'm the Associate Vicar at All Hallows by the Tower, which is just west, just northwest of the Tower of London. All Hallows is actually the oldest church in the city. It dates to around 675, so it's 400 years older than the Tower. I've been reading recently about our founder all those years ago. Her name was Ethelberger and she was abbess of Barking Abbey, about eight miles up the river. And I had the sensation of that long time between us somehow melting away because as we are now, she was living in a time of pandemic. In Ethelberger's case, the pandemic was the plague, which of course, sadly, there were frequent outbreaks of in uh, Anglo-Saxon and medieval England. I've been reading about Ethelberger and her experiences during the plague in Bede's History of the English Church and People which is a wonderfully alive kind of tapestry of stories telling the history of Saxon England and Celtic Britain. Bede was a monk uh, living in a monastery in the north in Jarrow, but he gathered material from all over the country and his stories really transport you back to the woods and the fens and the monasteries of the time. And you really get involved in all the struggles between the Anglo-Saxon invaders who came from the east and the Celtic people who were already here and all the rivalries between the different Anglo-Saxon kings and so on. And Bede tells us several stories about Ethelberger and her nuns in Barking. There's a really touching one about a little boy who died of the plague and had obviously been nursed by one of the nuns. And this is how it goes. In this convent lived a little boy named Ischia, not more than three years old, who being so young, was being brought up and taught his lessons in the cell of these virgins vowed to God. Attacked by the plague and about to die, he three times called the name of one of Christ's virgins as though she were present, saying, Edith, Edith, Edith. Then he left this present world and passed to eternal life. The nun whose name he had called with his dying breath was at once stricken where she was by the same disease and departed this life, following the child who had called her to the kingdom of heaven. So it sounds as if Edith had actually been nursing this little boy who tragically died and for some reason she wasn't able to be present when he actually did die but of course having been in close contact with him was likely to have caught the plague from him and then she also died herself. And they're just very obvious echoes to me of what's been happening lately with um, medical staff risking their lives to look after COVID-19 patients and one has that real sense of sadness and of sacrifice reaching down the ages, just reading stories like this. So who was Ethelberger and what do we know about her? I'm joined today uh, via Zoom very kindly by Kate Boyle, 
who is a city guide and also a volunteer guide at All Hallows by the Tower. So Kate, welcome. What can you tell us about Ethelberger and about the founding of All Hallows? Well, we don't know that much about Ethelberger. Um, what we do know, a lot of it comes from Bede, as you were reading there. We don't have any definite dates for either her birth or her death, but we know that she lived in the seventh century, um, that she was possibly of a minor Royal Anglo-Saxon family from the Lincolnshire area. Um, she's often uh, talked about in uh, collaboration with her slightly more famous brother, Erkenwald, who went on to be the fourth uh, Bishop of London at St Paul's, or the fourth Saxon uh, Bishop of London. It's thought that possibly they were converted to Christianity by St Melitus. Melitus, who was the first Bishop of London, uh, who was sent over uh, by Pope Gregory to, um, to help Augustine in his um, conversion of the pagans uh, in Kent. And um, having been converted to Christianity, the story is that she refused to marry a pagan prince. And thus her brother, Erkenwald, uh, founded two monasteries or two abbeys, one in Chertsey in 661 for himself, um, he was abbot of, of that abbey, and the second for his sister uh, in Barking. And so she became the first abbess of that priory. And it got, um, from very early on, it had a very good reputation for, uh, for intellect and for learning. So she was obviously not only a noble woman, but she was an educated woman. And they studied not only the scriptures, but the teachings of the fathers of the church, and the classical languages. And right down to the dissolution of the monasteries, we kept that reputation. It had a great reputation for learning and for associating with noble women, with royal women uh, who became abbesses uh, over time. And even uh, Thomas Beckett's sister was an abbess there at one point. Obviously, as you mentioned, uh, she founded our church, All Hallows by the Tower in the City of London, and this was on lands that was given to her by her brother in the year that he became Bishop of London. And if you enter the church from the porch, from, uh, from Great Tower Street, you will see there is a statue of St. Ethelberger. Uh, it's one of the three statues which is in that porch there. Of course, in the city, we also have a whole church which is dedicated to St. Ethelberger the Virgin, and that is on Bishop's Gate, and that was the gate that was named after her brother, Bishop Erkenwald. Now, unfortunately, that was, I mean, it's one of the smallest churches in the city of London, only 55 foot long. Uh, it was one of the rare medieval churches which actually survived into the 20th century survived the war, survived uh, the Great Fire of London, but it, it, it was practically destroyed in an IRA bombing in 1992. Uh, a decision was made to rebuild uh, that church and it is now a centre of peace and reconciliation. But if you go into the church, in the east window, there is a beautiful uh, window, which was by um, a female artist, Helen Whitaker who used the pieces of glass from the shattered windows to make this brand new window, 
which shows Dame Ethelberger striding along, wearing the black habit and veil and a white wimple of the Benedictine order, holding a staff, the staff of her office and her in her hand, and her cloak is billowing behind her, and the lining of the clothes, all coloured and is made of these beautiful pieces of glass that were gathered up after the bombing. And she's looking forward, she's not looking back, she's looking forward and she's looking up to this wonderful light, uh, which is um, the heavenly kingdom of Jerusalem. So I would recommend if anybody wants to go and, and see a, a picture of Ethelberga, that's where they go. Uh, thank you. Yes, I read in, in Bede, there's a lovely story about um, a nun, another, one of her nuns having a vision of her when she died of being carried up with the heavenly light and carried up on golden cords to, to heaven. She so was obviously a very powerful woman and uh, we're at All Hallows we're very lucky that we've recently been able to commission an icon of her um, as a result of a kind gift from a parishioner who wanted to have something to contribute to using the church and it's um, it's by the well-known icon painter Aidan, Aidan Hart and I just love the way he's portrayed her face really strong and dignified and serene. She was obviously a woman with considerable power. Um, I just wondered, Kate, um, outbreaks of plague were a fairly regular occurrence in Anglo-Saxon and, and medieval England. Perhaps you could just tell me a bit more about monasteries in and around the city at that time and their involvement in healing and caring for the sick. Yeah, well, monasteries at the time, I mean, in the monasteries in the time of Ethelberger would have been quite isolated sort of areas, but they would have been expected to give hospitality. So hospice, the word means stranger or traveller, and particularly when people were travelling around going on pilgrimage, they would be expected to be able to stay at a monastery on their journey. And the monastery... If the person became sick, obviously they would care for them. And if they died, they would have a duty, a Christian duty, to bury that person. It's not really until after uh, the Norman conquest when you get other orders, you get orders like the Cistercians and the Augustans, they come in after 1066, that you get the building of these separate uh, monastery uh, hospitals. So you get uh, the origins of some of the great hospitals which are still here with us today. So just south of the river, of course, we've got a St. Thomas's Hospital and that started at the Augustinian Priory of St. Mary Overy. Overy meaning over the river. So it was over the river uh, in Southwark. And that um, priory was founded in 1106 and they founded a hospital on their grounds there. Now there was a fire there in 1212 and when the priory was rebuilt they rebuilt the hospital on the other side of the road and that's when it became St Thomas. St Thomas um, Beckett had been uh, martyred and they changed their name of the hospital from St Mary Priory uh, to St Thomas's. On the other side of the city just past Liverpool Street there was another Augustinian priory and this was called St. Mary without Bishopsgate. This was probably the biggest hospital in London at the time. Uh, it had 180 beds and typically two people in each bed. So um, one of the biggest hospitals there and that was of course on one of the main roads into the city of London. Now when um, 
uh, recent uh, excavations taking place there because of the market at Spitalfields. And Spitalfields, of course, the word is just a corruption of hospital fields. They found a mass grave there with some 4,000 bodies in it and dated that to the middle of the 13th century. So this time it was, it was not plague, but it was famine. People coming in from the countryside into London and into the religious houses looking for respite, looking for food and looking for care. Unfortunately, as we have this mass pit of 4,000 people, they obviously weren't able to cope with that sort of influx. That hospital also had a lying in ward for women, something quite unusual. We tend to think of women having their babies at home in those days, but it had a lying in ward. Uh, and they also looked after children up to the age of seven. So um, unfortunately, some of those women would have died in, in, in childbirth. Probably the most famous of the hospitals from this period, of course, is St. Bartholomew's uh, Hospital. And that was founded in 1123 by a man called Rahia. Now, Rahia was, um, he was a, a jester at the court of Henry I. Uh, unfortunately, 1120, we had what was called the White Ship Disaster, when the White Ship went down with Henry I's son and heir, only son and heir, and suddenly the court was not uh, a very happy place, and Rahia went on pilgrimage uh, to Rome, and there he fell ill himself, probably with malaria, uh, and he had a vision of St. Bartholomew. And uh, he promised St. Bartholomew that if he was cured, he would go back to London and he would found a monastery and a hospital in his name. And that's what he did. He founded a hospital just on the edge of the city there in West Smithfield. And, uh, and St. Bartholomew's again was dissolved uh, at the dissolution of the monasteries, but Henry VIII himself refounded that hospital and there is a statue of him over the entrance gate. And St. Bartholomew's is there today, still offering uh, healthcare to the people of the City of London. Thank you very much. And uh, during um, our current uh, pandemic, hospital chaplains, including at, at Barts actually, have obviously been involved in caring for the sick by sort of coming alongside them with their families and praying with them and just being a, a listening ear when things are really difficult. There's a story in Bede about a, a nun in Ethelberger's convent who was dying and then she saw a bright light which she saw as evidence that God was calling her home and there's obviously a real mix in Bede of the, of the spiritual and the medical side. How, how much do you think that care of the sick in those days was um, spiritual and how much actual practical medical intervention do you think there was? Mm, it's a difficult question. I mean, in Ethelberger's um, day, and what we, we didn't mention is that, of course, she was an abbess of uh, a double monastery. So she had not only nuns, but she had brothers there. So she was, uh, a, you know, a leader of both men and of women. She would expect obedience from the men as well as from the women. And at this time of plague, uh, it was the men who first started falling ill. And uh, she rallied the women to nurse the, the men. They were, you know, aware of the dangers of this. And as you mentioned, the same sort of sacrifices as frontline staff uh, are doing today. They even talked about where they would be buried. 
so uh, they knew that you know the, the nursing that they were doing could lead to dying themselves and it's at this point that um, Ethelberger sees one of the one of her visions she said to have the gift of, um, of miracles, uh, she saw one of the visions, which was a great light, which she said was greater than even the moon, the noonday sun. And uh, this gave her and the nuns the strength to carry on. So they were definitely leaning more towards the spiritual than to the practical, but it gave them the strength to carry on in these terrible times and to nurse first the brothers and then the sisters who died. And it said that they, they were buried at the spot where the light came down. But generally, medieval people didn't distinguish between the practical and the spiritual as we do. They regarded the person as much more holistic and they were more concerned with the spiritual needs of the person. Um, sickness was seen as something that had come into the world with the fall of Adam and Eve. So probably the first thing that happened when you went into the hospital, uh, instead of a triage as you would get today in St. Bart's, was you'd be whisked off to confession. So that if you did die, at least you would die in a state of grace. Before the hospitals were actually separate from the monastery, the beds would actually be put in the nave of the church. And it was there that the patient would actually be able to see the altar, they'd be able to see mass going on, they would be able to see the monks and the nuns going about their ruling prayers. And then if you died, this would be seen as, you know, as a wonderful death uh, in a state of grace facing the altar. Uh, that's not to say that obviously the, the, you know, the nuns and the monks didn't have medical knowledge. They did have a great deal of medical knowledge, particularly to do with herbs. Uh, they, they kept great recipe books with herbs in them. Uh, Southwark Cathedral, a few years ago, they actually laid out a part of their grounds as a herb garden, as a reminder of the herbs which the monks would have used at that priory church, uh, St. Mary the Priory. And uh, there is another one of these um, abbesses, St. Hildeberg of Bingham uh, in the 12th century. She wrote two great books, uh, one on, on herbs uh, and one on humours you know, the four humours in, in the body which needed balancing. And uh, they would typically uh, be corrected by the use of either bloodletting or leeches. And um, she also, even as early as this, she wrote about boiling water for drinking. So she saw the necessity of sterilising water as early as the 12th century. Other um, advice came um, some of the crusading orders. So St. John of Jerusalem, who had their headquarters in, in Clerkenwell, they brought back lots of medical uh, advice and medicines from the East, so from Arabic writing out there. They had a hospital for crusaders in Jerusalem, and they brought back that knowledge. So there was a great mixture of both practical and spiritual. A lot of emphasis, of course, was laid on blessing the patient, blessing them with holy water, blessing them with holy oils, making the sign of the cross on all their limbs, going on pilgrimage, you know, visiting relics. Certain saints obviously were associated with certain diseases. St. Giles was associated with lepers. St. Bartholomew, as he was flayed to death, was associated with skin diseases. 
So there was much more of a mix, although I have to say that today, a lot more people are going back to a, a holistic view of medicine. They want to see the whole person being treated rather than just, you know, just the disease. Yes, I agree. And I think that indeed, too, the spiritual and the physical are not really seen as separate entities. There are lots of miracles in his stories, but they're mostly miracles of healing. I think there's a real recognition of the, the spiritual and the physical working together. So thank you very much, Kate. I'm joined now by Wendy Shearer, who is senior pastor at St Anne's Lutheran Church, which is based at a city church close to All Hallows, St Mary at Hill, where they share the building with the Anglican congregation. Wendy is also a hospital chaplain at Bart's Hospital Trust, and so I wanted to ask her about the interface between the spiritual and the physical today. Wendy, how do you see the role of the church in healing and accompanying the sick uh, today? Well, like you were saying, of course, you can't separate this, the physical and the spiritual. We are whole integrated people. We have many aspects, but we can't ignore one, you know, at the expense of another. And I think the church especially has a, a role that is very particular in acknowledging the spiritual first and how it relates to the other aspects and how it may have an impact. Um, for just personally, I've, I've always believed this, that oftentimes what manifests itself physically can be um, a sign of something that's going on unaddressed underneath spiritually. And that's, it's something that I, I look to when I'm working with hospital patients, for instance. Um, you don't always have to know what something is, you know, what the specific thing is that's going on. You can see outward manifestations of it and you can, you can bring in that healing and ask for that spiritual healing for whatever that thing is. Um, you don't have to have a complete understanding of it. I guess what we do is different from, say, the psychologists who come in and really try to target issues that can be addressed. You know, they have a very important work as well and we work alongside them. But our work I feel, I feel freed in a way because I can draw on the spirit to attend to that person in exactly the way that is needed. And I don't have to understand all the inner workings of it to, to channel that spirit for that person and to be that presence for them as well, which can also have a very healing effect, just being there present with someone, which I would say is the center of most of what we do in hospital chaplaincy. And I was talking earlier about Effelberger, who lived so long ago, late seventh century, um, but we do face many of the same problems that she was facing with our current pandemic. And I just wondered how the pandemic has been for you in your work as a hospital chaplain. Yes, well, we've been sort of going right on as normal. It, if normal is a word that can be applied to these days, perhaps not, but we've been going on with our work um, in person with people as needed. It has changed slightly. Uh, the pattern of what I do may be slightly different because normally we would be going through the wards, introducing ourselves to people, having a lot of um, circulation amongst the different places in the hospital. And because all of that has been very much reduced, in the interest of minimizing contacts between people. We're much more called in for specific referrals, 
for individuals who perhaps would like to see a chaplain or have particular needs. And so I've been able to see the same people several times um, and build up a relationship with them and really see how it has affected people a lot, not being able to have visitors when they're in hospital. It's, it's just so important that support, which we know already, but when we see the effect of individuals not being allowed to have their family members visit in person, it does take a toll. There's a lot of loneliness, uh, disconnection, and anxiety, I think, that gets, it might be present there anyway from being in the hospital, but just because of that further step of disconnection has been magnified in those cases. Um, they are, you know, they, they do let relatives in, but usually if it's an exceptional circumstance like end of life or the patient needs extraordinary assistance or that sort of thing. So as a rule, you won't see family members there, which is quite unusual for us because we're used to connecting with family and being part of the wider circle of support. So now, and it's, it goes on, you know, even what we, so the so-called height of the pandemic, no one really knows when or what that is. But at the time when there were a lot more patients in the hospital that had, um, that had the virus, now, you know, there are fewer but we're seeing the after effects of that time with people coming in maybe that didn't get treatment before for other conditions because they were afraid to come into the hospital. So there's, there's just as much need now and perhaps even more because the lingering conditions that we're seeing going on indefinitely, you know, with no, no end in sight, has, is stirring up a lot of anxiety for people. And I think even for staff as well, we, we don't know what's around the corner and people are a bit uh, anxious about that as well. So I suppose that's one of our major roles, just to be with people in the midst of that anxiety and to be, to be with them, to be companions with them. Yeah, no, it's a really valuable job you do, I think. So thank you very much indeed, Wendy, for joining us. My pleasure. So although Bede was writing in 731, soon after Ethelberger was alive and a very long time ago now, perhaps we can see there were some links between his world and ours. The nun, Edith, looking after that little boy he describes in that seventh century pandemic, may not have been able to cure him as no doubt she would have liked to, but she could care for him and be with him to hold his hand and see him as a unique individual valuable in the sight of God and pray for him. And this work still continues today. We move from the 7th century now to the 18th century and cross the Atlantic to learn about the life and the city links of poet Phyllis Wheatley. I'm delighted to be joined today by Celeste, who is a member of the congregation at St Botolph's. Celeste, would you like to introduce yourself? Um, of course. Um, so um, I'm Celeste and I am a teacher and, um, and an artist. Um, so I write poetry and produce um, projects um, that promote social inclusion and um, we, I use participatory uh, methods to do so. So my real interest is kind of um, the triangulation of the arts, education, 
and history to promote in, um, inclusion and community cohesion. Fantastic. And the person that we're speaking about today is Phyllis Wheatley. How did you first come across Phyllis Wheatley? So I first came across Phyllis Wheatley um, from my parents. So um, they were very good in um, promoting, you know, all sorts of histories quite a diverse type of history and I was very interested in literature and the arts from a young age. Um, so having been brought up in the East End, um, my parents also encouraged me to find out or, or kind of introduced me to poets and writers who were local or had a link with the local. So the East End and Allgate and the City of London that's when I was first introduced to her. Can you tell us a little bit about her? So Phyllis Wheatley, um, she was an African woman um, who was enslaved, so I suppose an African-American woman. She was enslaved at a very young age, around about, I think, the age of seven. But obviously, because she was enslaved, there's no necessarily any papers to um, to confirm this. But um, she was enslaved. She was caught by um, African people. She was caught by African people in, in probably they think either Gambia, Ghana, or Senegal, and brought over on a on a slave ship called Phyllis to America and um, that's why she was given the name Phyllis and so this was in um, I believe she was born in around 1753 and so she was brought to Boston Massachusetts on July the 11th 1761 um, so a rich, wealthy family bought her in, in what they called the slave auction. And so she was a poet? She was a poet and she was the first African-American um, poet to be published. But she wasn't, I mean, she started writing poetry at a young age, they believe around 10. 10 years old. Um, her first published poem was in, when she was 13 in a Gosh. local newspaper. Um, and she, yeah, so she's the first um, kind of African-American enslaved woman to be published. But at the time, they wouldn't publish her in America. So um, she was published in, in London instead. And so that's our city link with her, um, was that she was published in Aldgate? Yes, yeah, so she was published in Aldgate by Archibald Bell, who had a printer's on, I think it's number eight, Aldgate Street. Um, and it had to be, it was certified by 14 signatures who said, um, these notable people said that they are asserting and they are saying that she wrote it because there's lots of people 
before this book was published, this book of poetry was published, she said that a, uh, a slave cannot write poetry and they cannot write poetry of her nature. She was very accomplished. When you look at her works, her works are very accomplished and they have lots of references to classical European literature and history. So she, and she, so she quotes and makes references to people like Homer, um, who else? Um, I think it's, is it Virgil? Mm. Um, I can never pronounce this gentleman's name properly. Um, what's his name? Masa oh, I'll, I'll remember at the end and I'll say it at the end. I'll That's remember. all right. <laughs> Don't worry. And um, so, she, so she was published in Oldgate, but not in America? No, she wasn't published. Only The only published poetry in America was in newspapers, but never a book. Wow, that's really interesting. No one, no one, would, no one would pick it, no one would do it. Um, and I mean, I forgot to say that before, when they, when, when they went to the, the slave auction, um, the reason why they took her in, they said, the family, because all the other people, the enslaved Africans, who were in the auction looked quite hardy and strong and were a lot older, but she was, they said, very thin and small and young and um, very pretty. And they, and so, and so they, um, and so they, they are, it's really hard for me to say the words, but so they bought her. Mm. Um, and they bought it's, it's her. It's so shocking. It's so shocking to hear the word, it's, isn't it? Yeah. Can't imagine. It's different when you're writing these things down, isn't mm. it? But when you actually say it, it gives it a different weight. So they brought her to um, to to kind of um, occupy their children and to be someone that the wife, that the, the family, the, the kind of the matriarchal head of the family. Mm. But they they didn't. They said that they didn't want to put her in. Like the other people that they had that were enslaved, the other Africans, they did not, and African Americans, they did not want to give her any hard work because they felt that she had a very um, slight and weak constitution. Mm. And there's now a blue plaque up for her. Do you say a bit more about that? Um, so yeah, there's a plaque um, that was put up in 2019 um, on, oh gosh, what's the... St. Bottles Row, isn't it? On the Dorset Hotels. Yeah, on the Dorset Hotel. And um, it was a really nice um, afternoon, an event where they had people dressed in, in um, they had someone dressed as Phyllis Weekly, and they recited some of her poetry. And they also did a, a, a Gambrian ritual, naming ritual and ceremony and mm -hmm. uh, just celebrated her life and there was drinks and things so it was really yeah. nice I, th I mean i love seeing the plaque up now because it's just next to some bottles and and to see a plaque to a, a black woman in the city is very unusual isn't it it is i mean when when um in 2018 as you know there was the all gate um all gate festival mm. and um i was involved in a project where we looked at the hidden histories of women in in the city, but particularly Allgate. Mm. And Phyllis Wheatley was one of the women that we, we looked at in detail. 
and I wrote some poetry and we did a performance on her. And yeah, it was really powerful, I remember. And um, I think a lot of people were surprised, surprised that she wasn't allowed to be published in America. Um, and also very proud that Allgate was a, a place that, you know, that published the first works of an African-American mm -hmm. female poet. And when you look at something, like when I was doing my research and you look at the amount of people in the city of London who uh, wanted to receive her and took her around and um, they seemed to really, uh, you know, you know, as much as they did in, in, in that time, kind of open their arms to help her. So she did visits? Yeah, so she visited in, um, I think it's 1773, but I will check and, and mm. uh, confirm that with you. Um, so she did visit, she came with um, the son of the man who, um, who brought her and was taken around by um, Gamble Sharp, um, met the, um, the mayor of London and was also going to be received by the king at the time and lots of other people, but her visit was cut short as her, her mistress was, was really ill. Okay. So she left amid all the things that were arranged for her and all the people that she was arranged to meet. She left and really quickly went back because her mistress was, was ill and never came back, never returned. Was her mistress died later that year and then the husband died the following year. And even though they gave her her freedom, that meant that she was not really very protected. Um, mm. So um, she, never, she never returned. And she died very young, didn't she? She died very young. Um, she married a free black man. Um, but when you look at the research, they said that he wasn't very, he wasn't the best of men. <laughs> they, they talk about his, I mean, she never says in her writing, she never says anything um, about, you know, bad about him because her writings are not just poetry. She wrote a lot of letters to notable people and she kept a diary. So there's a lot of her, her life that is actually recorded. Um, but yeah, no, he was a he was a shop owner, but he soon fell into debt, um, and he ended up in debtors' prison. So she then went into service with her children, and yeah, she just she passed away. She was ill, and her children passed away. So very very sad. And I understand that there are some scholars who are concerned that she didn't have a strong voice as an enslaved person. Would you like to kind of tell us a little bit more about that? Yeah, well, I mean, even, you know, when I'm talking about this, I'm conflicted because I really think that she, what she did for the time that she was is like, is amazing. And mm. she was, like, she was so accomplished and so, I mean, writing by the age of 13, of English, with English being your second language. And they said that by the time she was 10, she had um, had a very firm grasp on English. She was learning Latin, French, Spanish. Um, so by the time she was 13 and writing her first poetry, she had a very good grasp on these languages. Mm. Particularly Latin is, a, 
by then already a dead language. Yes. Um, and the histories of all these things, she, she must have been, had, had like a phenomenal mind. Mm -hmm. So, um, yeah, so I'm conflicted, but yeah, um, let me say a little bit more about... Oh, Can you just say what the scholars actually, um, what, the, what yeah, their concern so, would be? So the critique of Wheatley in, with some scholars, particularly in the 60s, have said that because there's an absence of a strong sense of her identity as a black enslaved person, mm. um, that the development of black people um, at her time and even later, there, they say that there is a barrier mm. um, and it makes it difficult because they're saying that she suffers from her condition, being an enslaved person, that that limits her yeah. being able to, you know, advocate for herself and others, mm. um, you know, particularly, Afri you know, African-Americans. Yeah. And they said that they believe that her, her, her worldview comes very much from her upbringing as an enslaved person and mm. Therefore, she's conflicted because this the family that took her in and were so good to her also actually bought her. Yeah. And she was enslaved by her. So, I mean, for me, I, you know, I agree with what they're saying to a point. Um, but if you look at her writings and you look at her poetry, it's very, it's very clear to me. All that is clear, like in any art, nobody's perfect, any artist. The most you can do in art is be honest and in her poetry it's very honest so if someone is honest then you can look at that and say well i'm going to take this and i'm going to take that and I, i'm going to look at it as a product of its of, of its time i'm going to look at her as a product of mm. her time and think about you know how much power did she have as mm. a woman and as a black enslaved woman um mm to be an advocate for herself and other black people. I think she was, I think she was a very, you know, she, she did, I think she was a very good advocate. And if you look at her poetry, she talks about Christianity. She talks about, she alludes to all these classical um, kind of European tropes mm. things. But she also very cleverly talks about alludes to her African roots and alludes to things like the sun and the worship of the sun and she ties that in with Christianity so actually it's all there if you want if you want to to read it but I think maybe it's hidden because she probably knew how how precarious her situation was yeah I mean it's, in her context it sounds like she was intelligent um empathetic I mean she, she was really clear about who she was and uh, from the sounds of it um and and that she was able to express that uh is extraordinary and and at that time when when she wasn't able to be published in in the country in which she was living mm -hmm. yes do you have a favorite poem of hers um that is a good question do i have a favorite i mean i love a lot of her poetry i think they're very reflective and um I think a good one is on being brought from Africa to America. 
It's not necessarily my favourite, but I think it's very, it's very interesting to read because she, she talks about, you know, she talks about being brought from Africa to America and she, she talks about her situation and she also talks about um, slavery and how abhorrent it is and also um, about about blackness mm. and you know, she alludes to she, she talks about black people being christians and i think it's probably quite a good, a good considering what you're doing this podcast i think that this one is quite an, an it's a good place for people to understand something yeah. of her brilliant Thank you ever so much, Celeste, for joining us. That's been absolutely enlightening and uh, wonderful to hear a bit more um, about Phyllis. And uh, although it seems really odd calling her a name, which was of the ship that had taken her enslaved to um, America, but uh, we remember her and everything that she uh, she was. And I'm really grateful for your time. Thank you. Thank you for listening to our podcast. Many of the city churches are now open for private prayer and for public worship and would be very pleased to welcome you.